Good morning, welcome back. I'm Pastor Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace Lutheran Church in Marana, Arizona. I uh, want to welcome you back to the second of four classes, little, little mini lectures, I guess you could say, on human sexuality. Uh, this is part of a larger social statement study that I've been doing in live classes on Wednesday nights. I thought today, for those who are not able to come in person and have the discussion, I would give kind of a synopsis. First off, I'll apologize. My eyes are dry as all get out from the weather. So if you see me squinting, rubbing my eyes a lot, um, it's my contacts. I can't fix it uh, right now without going home. So anyways, uh, to last week we looked at human sexuality with a sampling, and it really is just a small sampling of Old Testament passages, and showing how in the Old Testament there are really many varied views on the Bible, uh, not on the Bible, but on human sexuality, that it is not monolithic, that there are lots of different perspectives, and that the line that you usually hear that says, uh, sex is between one man, one woman in marriage, period, end of story. When you look at the Old Testament in particular, you find a lot of exceptions to that. You find polygamy, you find uh, concubines, you find rules for having sex with slaves, you find uh, various premarital things going on. It's not a one-faceted book, and that phrase, in marriage, one man, one woman, does not exist in the Bible, and it definitely does not exist in the Old Testament. So it kind of ran out of time, so I thought I'd pick up today by looking at New Testament. I'd gotten through that again. So what we'll do is still a sampling, uh, and um, we're still just going to look at bits and pieces. I do encourage you to go and find some mainline, more progressive writers who've examined this topic in way more depth than me. Uh, they can get into the nature of the specific words that are used. I'm hoping today, as we look at the New Testament, to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of a framework, some structure for how uh, the Bible understands it, and particularly how sexuality gets addressed in the New Testament. So, let me, let me switch over here to, there we go. Uh, I put this up last time. Uh, I put this... Uh, sort of drawing, it was just me sketching stuff out with a Sharpie on a piece of paper. But I, th I thought this might be a useful as a way to have some understanding of the different views within the Bible. So, this is an oversimplification. I know that, I'm aware of that. But sometimes an oversimplification helps you to get a framework, right? You can deal with exceptions later. So, if you go through the Bible, there are multiple different sections, but this is generally how they are grouped, more or less, right? In the very, very beginning, first five books, the Torah. Torah means law. I mean, that, that's literally what Torah means. It's the Hebrew word for law. So you'll find in those first five books a lot of the familiar stories we're used to, the Exodus, creation, Jacob, those kind of things, but you'll also find 623 laws. So lots and lots of laws. There are many laws in there that deal with sexuality, marriage, family. Most of those we, uh, we don't follow in any way, shape, or form. Even the most conservative evangelical fundamentalist churches do not follow those. Uh, and we looked at some of those last week, right? Virginity testing at weddings, these kind of things. 
Um, but like anything, laws can be applied fairly and unfairly, and people can find loopholes to them. And so along come the prophets, which is a much bigger chunk of the Old Testament, that are very critical of how a lot of these laws are applied, of people being inconsistent with them. So the prophets in many ways are a critique of people not following the laws. For example, they would be very careful with following the ritual sacrifice laws. So they would do their animal sacrifices for just as they were supposed to, but then they would turn around and rope people into debt slavery by giving predatory loans. And so the prophets would say, well, what good does your sacrifice and your religious participation do if, uh, if you don't treat your fellow neighbor well? Uh, so that's the prophets, right? We looked at some of that. Now we're going to get into the New Testament. And the New Testament, again, oversimplifying, is three kind of main sections. The first one is the Gospels. And those are the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then Acts, which is written by the author of Luke. They tell the story of Jesus. And then Acts is the disciples right after Jesus is raised. So... Uh, in, those, in that section, we'll look a little bit at this, you have Jesus come along and he kind of reinterprets a lot of these laws. And he's kind of a reformer. He isn't, an, isn't a throw out the law, let's do whatever we want. But he is someone who believes that we should relook at some things. And so we will see that in the Gospels that Jesus seems to be far more concerned about things like how we love our neighbor and how we treat one another than the strict application of laws which will get him in trouble with people who are much more concerned with the strict application of laws than they are with loving their neighbor. Then you get the Apostle Paul who comes along. And there you have Paul. Uh, I'm, and Paul, Paul never met Jesus in person. He saw Jesus in a vision. So they didn't cross paths in the flesh. And Paul, a good Jewish scholar, grew up in the Greek world. And so he's very well versed in Greek and Roman beliefs, and he will go and plant churches in the Greek-speaking Roman Empire, and he'll be dealing with sexuality from the Greek perspective. And a lot of the people in his churches will be converted Greeks or Greek-speaking Jews. So that's his world. He's got a little bit different of a world than Jesus. And Paul also believed the end was coming soon, so when he tended to look at sexuality, he had kind of a negative view of it, but... Um, while he had a negative view, he also tended to think, you know, Jesus is coming in 30 years, just hold on. So he wasn't trying to create long-term laws. And then finally, you get into the Deutero-Pauline epistles, which is a fancy way of saying books in the Bible that have Paul's name on them that aren't actually written by Paul. There's a bunch of these. Uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Second Thessalonians, they're not written by Paul. They're written by somebody else. Paul's name is on them. You will, one of the ways you know that Paul didn't write them is because they become real rigid about things like gender roles, uh, things like marriage, family. They, get, they have rules about widows and rosters for widows, these kind of things. Why do they have that? Because the early Christian church, as it grew and it got bigger, it caught the attention of the Greeks and Romans who were noticing that under Jesus and under Paul, women were taking positions of leadership. And there was always this concern, and it's a, it's a very consistent concern throughout the ages, that women sort of not following 
uh, gender roles and ha being under authority will lead to promiscuity. So having, restric having re sexual restrictions also comes very much hand in hand with uh, control issues and control in the family issues and hierarchy issues. So you'll see this in those and in the quote pastoral epistles. They're the little letters at the end. One, two, three, it's one and two Timothy, one, two, three Peter, Titus. Jude, these books are very much clamping down. It's almost like women were, they were worried the women were getting too out of control, so we gotta, gotta clamp down the law, put law and order and regulation. So if you look at the Bible, if you look at the whole Bible in kind of the bigger picture, what do you see? You get laws, critiques, reform, reform, laws. It kind of, each end is laws. If you want your religion to be about rigid, unchanging laws, particularly laws that maintain hierarchy and authority, you'll go to the, 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 the bookends of it. If you're somebody who wants to look at things in a bit more of a situational, contextual kind of way, you'll lean more towards Jesus, towards the prophets, towards the real writings of Paul. Those will be the things that you lean towards. So in essence, what you end up with is you end up with Christians arguing against Christians about the Bible says. And you'll end up with one side saying, it absolutely says right here in Timothy, women may not have authority over the man. Bible says, closed, end of story, boom. And then you'll have others going, well, actually, in Paul, as some of his churches, he had women who were heads of churches that had to have implied authority. Right? So we're both arguing what the Bible says, but we both tend to look at different parts of the Bible. Okay. That's my background. I hope it doesn't bore you. We will continue to look at, there we go. Let's look at some, we weren't supposed to do Exodus. Um, I have the wrong thing in here. Boy, this this morning's just full of fun, exciting stuff. Um, this is, there we go, there's Matthew. Um, I thought I had changed that in the PowerPoint. Okay, here we go. Matthew 19, we're gonna do a little bit of a sampling again. I'll give some commentary on this. Hopefully this will be helpful to you. We'll read it through. This is New Revised Standard Version, Matthew 19. Some Pharisees came to him, to Jesus, and to test him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? All right, let's, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Okay, the Pharisees were a religious group uh, they weren't necessarily opponents of Jesus. Some, some were, but I think some were just legitimately trying, wondering what he was thinking about matters of scripture. And it was a normal thing to, you know, for one Jewish scholar to ask another a question, um, to kind of put him on the hot seat. That was a normal thing. So they come to Jesus and they ask him this divorce question, uh, which is always a hot button question, right? Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Ooh, any cause. Are they looking to, for Jesus to give 
which causes are legitimate and which ones aren't? That's kind of what it's hinting at. And Jesus said, and he goes back and he goes back to creation. He made them male and female. Okay. And so for this reason, a man should leave his father, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Interesting way that that's worded too, because the cultural practice tended to be much more, the wife would leave her family and go to the groom's family. It was a, uh, what they call patrilineal, not a matrilineal. In a matrilineal culture, the man leaves his family and goes to the wife's family. This tended to be the other way. Uh, but so Jesus is saying, all right, you know, God made male and female, God made us to be joined together, okay. Um, and they're no longer two flesh but one, right? So there's a, you know, your, your bond is a deeper, more meaningful bond than just pure, uh, you know, contract. Therefore, what God's joined, let no one separate. Okay, well, that's what you probably hear uh, on weddings, right? And traditional weddings. What God has joined asunder, let, let, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder, let no one separate. Uh, so then they ask him the obvious question. Okay, well, if God intended for us to be married and to be married permanently, then why does it say, and when it says Moses, it was believed that Moses wrote the first five books. So when you read through the Gospels and it said Moses says, what they're really saying is it's in the first five books, the Torah, the law says. Okay, if we can't get divorced, why does it say you can get a divorce? Good question, right? They point out a contradiction. So what does he say? Well, Jesus says to him, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. Oh man, got to love this. Okay, so Jesus says, in an ideal world, if people were not hard-hearted, you wouldn't need divorce. But Moses understands, the lawgivers understand, that uh, human nature is not that way, right? Sometimes we are hard-hearted and stubborn. Um, and so, he, Jesus does lay out, he says, well, you, you can divorce for adultery. Right? Cheating is a legitimate one. And, uh, but it knows how it's a man who divorces his wife. The, there were parts, probably most, that kept it so that the man was the one who filed for divorce. Women couldn't file for divorce, for the most part. I think in practice there were some exceptions to that. But for the most part, divorce was filed by man. It was a man divorcing his wife. And uh, there was a lot that came with that. A lot of baggage that we don't necessarily read. So we read this and go, oh my gosh, so if the guy beats his wife, she has to stay with him? Or, you know, if a, a, you know, if a guy goes and, you know, if his wife is, a, you know, in jail for drug dealing, he has to stay married or he commits adultery? Really, Jesus? And, you know, so our minds immediately start concocting, you know, scenarios where the law seems unjust, right? where there seems like there should be legitimate reasons other than just cheating 
for getting a divorce. That's where our minds go. But in the in ancient world, in Jesus's world, for the most part, women didn't have jobs on their own. They didn't have careers on their own. There were, most of the time, they didn't have their own source of income, unless they were very wealthy, came from a wealthy family and had a big diary or an, a big inheritance. So getting divorced meant you were pretty much, you know, you couldn't just go out into the job market and get a job. Uh, if you were a woman, you were divorced. You had to go back to your family, and if they wouldn't take you back, which sometimes would happen, they sometimes wouldn't take you back. Um, you're damaged goods. It's, it's dishonor on the family. Maybe he divorced you because you just weren't a good wife. This reflects bad on us as a family. We won't take you back. So then you're out on the street. So the stakes were very high for a woman getting divorced. Divorcing her was not seen like we often see it today as divorce is freeing myself from a bad situation. Back then, divorce was sending someone uh, into poverty. And that was a common result of it. So it wasn't something to be taken lightly for a man to divorce his wife. And we all know that there are guys out there who divorce for very shallow reasons. You know, I want a younger model or, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, we know that happens. So Jesus is coming into a situation where, where he's, I, th I think, trying to put a lid on what he would see as frivolous divorce that causes great harm to families and communities and to women and to force guys to basically follow through on their commitments. Would that have led to a great loving relationship? Probably not, but I don't think most marriages in this kind of situation were great loving relationships. They were just arrangements, um, you know, for making babies and transferring inheritance. And so that's just how it was. Maybe it was, you know, and some were more loving than others, but that wasn't necessarily an expectation, right? Nowadays, we expect, well, if the relationship isn't loving anymore, I need to free myself and find love. Back then, you freed yourself from your marriage and you, you could be out on the street. It was a different way of looking at it. I think Jesus, what Jesus is doing here with his strictness, which is more strict than I would probably say it, uh, and Jesus does sometimes speak in hyperbole. He does tend to lay, you know, when he lays down a strict law and he knows that people are angling for loopholes, he tends to lay it down really hard, right? Because he knows our human nature is that if we really want out, if a guy really wants to d dis, or uh, sorry, if he really wants to divorce the wife that was arranged, that he's been with for 20 years, so he can take off with his secretary, say, he will find a loophole. Uh, and Jesus is saying, no, unless she cheated, we know what you're doing. You're dumping her and you're violating your agreement and your obligation. So there's a lot of context that matters there. But notice how as strict as Jesus is about divorce, all the people who talk about the Bible says are a perfectly capable of allowing divorce in all sorts of circumstances that don't involve adultery, right? How many of the people who will uh, say that uh, we absolutely should not have same-sex marriage in the U.S. will turn around and have had multiple divorces themselves, right? And, and that's actually a very common thing, right? What did Rush Limbaugh had like four divorces or something like that? Um, 
You know, some of these people, they get divorced a lot. And it's not adultery. Neither party cheated. They, you know, they've got their reasons. And they seem to be okay with saying, well, in this particular passage, Jesus didn't mean it literally. You can't, you can't take it literally here. And then you go, well, okay, so clearly you are okay with not taking passages literally, right? All right, verse 10. You know, that's where the disciples say, well, if this is the case, better not marry, right? Because uh, the punishment for adultery was stoning. And that was, at the very least, it was considered a horrible sin, even if you weren't stoned. So they're like, well, maybe if you just don't get married, then you don't take the risk. The risk is too high. And Jesus said, well, yeah, not everyone, want, not everyone can handle this, you know? But he wants people to think through what they're doing. A lot of harm has been done in the history of Christianity by divorce rules being excessively hard. And I do think there's a legitimate debate about when a divorce is warranted versus not warranted, how to lower it, prevent it. I think that's a good, there's a good conversation there and there's a lot of factors. Kind of my own feeling is we don't always think it through on the front end very well. You know, we aren't thinking, we aren't going into the marriage having those boring, calculating conversations about finances and who will manage money and who will do the housework and how will housework be divided and who's going to work at what career and how will that money be managed and where will money be put in retirement accounts and how do we handle credit cards? What are our expectations in the bedroom? Do we have similar expectations? How many kids do we want? How are we going to manage family vacations and whose house are we going to visit on family vacations? And these kind of boring, boring things become major, major uh, issues once people get married. I don't think we always think them through on the front end. I don't think we always do the work before we make the decision. Um, that doesn't, and so, you know, and so oftentimes by the time you're years into the marriage, the train has left the station so far that it's hard to fix it because it didn't start on the right thing. I also think there's, also, there's a million other reasons that go through. And so we try as a church to have a legitimate uh, sort of way of approaching this, of saying that divorce in some situations is necessary. Maybe it's not a great, a good, an intrinsic good, but sometimes it's necessary. Um, sometimes it may be more frivolous than others, but we're not gonna go with a sort of hard prohibition because we just know that there's too many situations where it really is needed. Um, but this is one of Jesus's divorce teachings. And the interesting thing, the reason I bring this one up is, of all of the New Testament, Jesus has absolutely zero, zero words to say about same-sex anything, about transgendered anything. Uh, he doesn't get involved in it at all. He doesn't say a word about it. We know in the Greek and Roman world, all around them, that there were all sorts, of, that homosexuality existed in many different forms, and society had laws and cultural expectations built around that, and it was a common practice I'm sure it varied by region to region, but for something that was very much present and around and public, Jesus says nothing about it, but he does talk about divorce, right? So the people who won't bake that rainbow-colored wedding cake, you know, are, are being really literal about a verse that doesn't exist and often being very frivolous or at least uh, 
open about violating divorce rules that do exist. Okay. Matthew, let's keep going with Matthew. Why am I looking at Matthew? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus spends the most time talking about laws. Here we go, Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This is, where, this is the one where we get into interpretive trouble. It's going to get a little bit nosebleed here, but just brace yourself. An argument I've heard made says, if Jesus did not explicitly change or nullify an Old Testament law, that law is still in effect. And we know because it says so right here in Matthew 5, right? He did not come to abolish. Not even one stroke of a letter is going to be abolished. Okay. So the argument goes, you know, Jesus might have gotten rid of stoning. He might have relaxed some Sabbath restrictions. He might have relaxed some of the purity rules about food and eating with sinners and tax collectors. But those, we have him explicitly saying, he did not explicitly nullify the part of Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus that talk about if a man lies with a man, he shall be stoned. And since he did not nullify Leviticus 18, where it talks about stoning men for man, for having gay sex, therefore, it's still in effect. And I'd say, okay, but you clearly don't do the virginity testing at weddings. You know, and Jesus did not explicitly ban that. So you're kind of picking. You're kind of excavating through a mountain of laws to find that one and say, well, Jesus didn't say you couldn't. Jesus didn't try to void it, so therefore it's still in effect. But then you void all these other ones. We all have to pick and choose. We all have to make these kind of decisions. We all have to go through interpretations as churches, as communities. Uh, we're never going to be able to follow them all literally, and that's okay. The only difference is that those of us in mainline churches and more progressive churches are willing to admit that. We're willing to sit there and say, you know, we know that there are verses we don't follow, and we know there's some, and there's a criteria. For us ELCA Lutherans, that criteria was set up by Martin Luther a long time ago as a fancy German phrase called was Christum treibt. Basically just means what reflects Christ, what shows Christ. So Jesus becomes the criteria for the others. Jesus becomes the lens. So what we like to do is look at the Gospels and then look at all those books about the law and say, okay, how does this law reflect Jesus's message of love and acceptance and these kind of things? Does the law about stoning men for having sex with other men, does that reflect Jesus's love? Uh, we would tend to say no, right? But Jesus is the lens. So we do pick and choose, but we have a criteria for picking and choosing. It's not absolute. If you're the kind of person that can't handle subjectivity and wants absolutes in your religion, this approach to scripture is gonna feel kind of wishy-washy. But we aren't saying, just open the Bible, find what you like and call that true. There's a process. 
And there are places where we come to conclusions, you know, that might not be what I as an individual would want. But we do this as a community, right? And one of the things we had to do as a community, probably starting back in the 60s, 70s in particular, uh, and I'll just speak for, you know, Lutheran churches in my denomination, is that, you know, divorce was really frowned upon. Uh, pastors could lose their jobs for getting divorced. But the church sort of reformed on that, right? And we didn't have huge splits and fights on that, but we kind of came to the conclusion that while we agree with Jesus' sentiment that men shouldn't just kick their wives out uh, so they can take off with the secretary, you know, that cliche, we recognize that life is complicated, that divorce happens, so we're going to try to be with people when it happens. And so we can, you know, we, we, can, we can move forward on that. All right. That's Matthew 5. Let's keep going. Romans 1. This is, this is one of the clobber verses, so uh, let me get a sip of my coffee and then we'll get started on this. All right. Romans 1. Verses 20. We're going to go 20 to 32. We'll just uh, do through 25 in this first chunk. Um, Ever since the creation of the world... His eternal power and divine nation, na nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. <coughs> Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right. We'll get to the second half of this in a sec. Paul, this is actually Paul in Romans. This is a real Paul letter. He's kind of laying out an argument really about people who don't know Jesus. It's a little bit that kind of argument of, you know, what about the person who lives in some remote area and never heard about Jesus and, and never converted to Christianity because they didn't know it exists? Would a loving God send that person to hell? That, that's always the question that gets asked, right? If, if knowing Jesus is the necessary for salvation, what about those who didn't even know, okay? Well, Paul kind of answers that question, and he says, look, you know, you have all of the creation to look at. And the creation you look at tells you that there is a creator. And you can see through this creation that God has set things up, right? And God has set things up in a certain way, and so you really don't have an excuse. You may not have worshipped the Lord God according to all those things, but you have the knowledge enough to not worship idols and to be an ethical person, which is kind of an interesting argument. Um, it, 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 I don't think Paul is trying to say you can be good without God, but he is saying that you can look around at creation and know not to worship the, tr worship the tree or worship an idol you made out of the tree or worship some idea of your own creation, you can tell that there's a creator and you should worship that creator. 
You don't have an excuse. If you can stare at the stars, you don't have an excuse. This is kind of where he's going from. So this is the point of the argument. The whole point of this passage isn't, people are getting too loose and promiscuous, I'm gonna clamp down on laws and put, get, get everyone back in order. He's kind of going at this differently, right? For verse 21, as he says, though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God, but they, you know, they became futile, right? They exchanged, verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds or four-footed animals, reptiles, right? So the root of the, the, root of the crime, the crime, is uh, that they were worshiping idols. They worshiped the creation, not the creator of the creation. At, at, at root to Paul, that's, that's where it starts. When we, when we make that switch, and when we make that switch to worshiping things of our creation, when we make that switch of worshiping things that are made instead of the maker, that's when our minds start going down other paths. We, we become unanchored, so to speak. Um, and so this is where, then he goes, gave their bodies up in lusts and hearts to impurity. Well, what does that mean? What are the lusts of heart and impurity? What falls into that category? Inquiring minds want to know, right? I mean, you know, but to Paul at this point, that isn't the key. The key is that we're pursuing self-gratification right? instead of pursuing what he would see as a long-term relationship, as a relationship with our creator and relationships with each other so that aren't based on, on lusts, that isn't based on gratifying yourself, but on something deeper, just as God has created us to live as something deeper. So he doesn't need to give a blow-by-blow blow of which exact sex act is right or wrong. The point is that we shouldn't be worshiping the creation. Okay. Start at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to their degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And the same way also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. All right, we'll stop there. God gave, they gave up on God, so God said, okay, fine, go your own way. This is kind of Paul's understanding of, of human history. So now we start getting a little bit of a detailed list. It's a little more detailed. Um, and, uh, but not as detailed enough as I think we would like as I think those who I know. This is one of those verses that they call the clobber verses. There are seven, maybe nine verses out of the 60-some thousand verses in the entire Bible that have maybe sort of any reference to homosexuality in any way. And some of them are more direct than others. Some of them are pretty indirect. But they're called the clobber verses because every time somebody wants to argue that we should be a more inclusive church, they whip those verses out and go, Bible says, clobber, clobber, clobber. And the idea is that once I've thrown out those verses and shown those verses to you, now you're, it's checkmate, game over, discussion's over, 
the Bible clearly says, and if you don't do what the seven clobber verses says, out you go. Again, I'd encourage you to look up books on the clobber verses. Uh, there are people who've done very good studies, again, way deeper than I have, to look into the clobber verses and to see, do the clobber verses really say, uh, thou shalt not have gay weddings? Um, those who study it would say that that question is, is a wrong question. It didn't exist in this time. But, okay, so what's going on? They gave up to their passions. What do they do? The women had unnatural intercourse. Well, what does that mean? Maybe you can fill in the blanks. Um, you could imagine some things. I'm not going to list them off on YouTube. But, again, Paul doesn't give you a blow-by-blow -blow list either of what exactly is included in natural and unnatural, right? Um, in the same way, the men gave up natural intercourse with women and were consumed with passion for one another. See, this one's starting to sound like us. See, you can see where they clobber people like this. Aha, see, see, it's unnatural. Men having passion for men is unnatural. It's unnatural, right? It's idolatry. They committed shameless acts with men. What are the shameless acts? Well, you gotta fill in that blank yourself, I guess. Um, and received in their own person the penalty of their error. What in the world that means, we don't know. What is receiving the penalty? I don't know, you, you have to, people have speculated, Paul leaves that a little bit vague. I think he's assuming that the people would know what it is. Does this mean, you know, the sack of Jerusalem? Does this mean, you know, plagues or famines or, who knows? Paul's got something in mind, he doesn't specify exactly what it is. Um, and since they didn't acknowledge God, God gave them up in their debased mind. But what's kind of interesting is, you know, the actions themselves are perceived as bringing on the penalty. Uh, it's almost like the actions themselves have consequences, and that's the penalty. It doesn't say here, God saw them consumed with that, and then smelt them and struck them down and lit them on fire or whatever, right? Whatever they did, it has its own consequences. Um, and God allowed those consequences to play out because they weren't worshiping him anymore. All right, here comes a laundry list. A lot of different sections of Paul, we get laundry lists. Here's the laundry list of the things they did. They, verse, starting at verse 29, they were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, uh, covetedness, cov covetousness, Malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. I like breaking down Paul's laundry lists. Because, again, if you're going to be literal, I'm going to expect you to take the whole passage literally. And if you notice here in his list of things that people have gone to by rejecting God, most of them have nothing to do with sexuality, right? Uh, covetousness, covet property, malice, uh, envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness, all those kind of things, 
you know. We're still talking about all sorts of things, not sexuality, they're gossips. You know, how many churches can be, communities can be destroyed by gossiping? You know, do we punish people for gossiping? You know, a church that stands on the Bible, will they punish their own members for gossiping the same way they would punish someone who, you know, admits that they just had a gay wedding? Um, eh, it's a good chance. I challenge him. Slanderers, God-haters, okay? Insolent, haughty, boastful. Well, don't be arrogant. You know, inventors of evil, whatever that means, right? Whatever the evil is. Rebellious towards parents. Paul clearly still is, thinks, per, you know, the whole idea of obeying. Uh, he's still in, in an authority worldview. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, right? How much in there, in that whole laundry list, how much of it actually deals with sexuality? I mean, let's be honest with you. Some of those could. Some of those could. That's usually what we gossip about. But there's nothing in gossiping that implies gay marriage being evil, right? Um, I suppose, uh, what, if you think that being faithless counts as that, but really that's more of a religious term. So what in this laundry list, what in this laundry list of all those examples that Paul gave, what in the laundry list has to do with sexuality? And you could say, well, he already dealt with that. Okay, maybe. But wouldn't we be better off as Christians trying to follow that laundry list than obsessing about what is natural and unnatural relations? Um, you know, than trying to be the, the, the natural relations police? Wouldn't we be better to be the lying, slandering, gossiping, faithless, ruthless, heartlessness police among each other? Wouldn't we be better to call each other out when we're being heartless? You know, the employer, I was just reading, um, the, the boss in Florida told her employees to keep working through the hurricane. Work through a hurricane and get to the office while you do it. I'm like, okay, heartless, ruthless, right? Now, social media shamed her pretty bad for what she did. Um, but... It, this is, Roma, this is Romans. You get, if you take it as a passage, as a package, you do get a sense that for Paul, there was natural and unnatural things that people are supposed to be doing with each other and their bodies. How exactly he defines that, we're not certain. We know in the Greco-Roman world that a lot of stuff was going on uh, that even we today would find abhorrent. For example, you end up, they had the whole issue, um, if you're a wealthy Roman man, you know, it was very common to have concubines, these sort of like half-wives. And so Roman men would have concubines. Prostitution was very common in the Greek and Roman world. Uh, it was everywhere. There were same-sex relations with underage males. I'm not going to go into detail on that on YouTube. But there was a whole structure of conditions within Greek and Roman society wherein that was acceptable as well. There were many pockets of Greek society that had adult consensual same-sex relations. Um, there were lots of things going on. But, so, but for Paul, I think he kind of looks on all of it as a bit of a package deal. And, and a lot of the stuff are stuff that I'm glad he kind of went against. The whole concubinage thing. I mean, what do they call today? A side chick or something like that. You know, you use the woman for what you want from her, but her kids don't get to inherit anything. Wow, that's kind of a, 
you know. Uh, that's kind of a slimy move, you know, and a lot of it has to do with money, exploitation, a lot of these things. Paul's entering this complicated world. I think in general he had a very negative view of it, but he had a negative view of the whole system. All right. Let's keep going with some more, a spattering of some more different examples here. One Peter. So we're going to jump from the Apostle Paul. Again, the guy who I think had a very... From reading his books, I get the sense that he had a very torturous view towards sexuality, that he himself probably was celibate, uh, that he did not. Uh, he talks to himself as being ugly, so I, I kind of get the sense that he probably didn't have the greatest uh, relationships with women, uh, that, he's, that he struggled sexually himself, that and that he talks about having a thorn in his flesh, but he doesn't elaborate on what it is. People have speculated it might have something to do with his sexuality. But so you've got a kind of a nerdy bookish guy who's not good with the women, who's celibate himself, who kind of looks on sexuality a bit negative and knows Jesus is coming. He really believes Jesus is coming soon. And so he really doesn't see much need or purpose for, for sex at all. Um, you know, but he does feel like if you, maybe if you didn't allow people the avenue of getting married, they might go get involved in all this other stuff. So if you can't be celibate and hold it until Jesus is coming in the next 30 years or so, at least get a wife. And he even says that if you can't be celibate, get a wife. But the reason you're getting a wife isn't to create a more ordered society. It's to avoid falling into sin. So I don't tend to always look at Paul as the best example for how to construct a sexual morality today because we don't necessarily believe Jesus is coming in the next 30 years. Uh, and so we're answering questions about the long term that he simply wasn't. And I think he himself, uh, just a lot of this is his own opinion and his own interpretation on things as somebody who never met Jesus face to face. So I would take what Jesus said as a higher uh, authority than what Paul says. Well, here we go. First Peter. We're going to jump to First Peter. This was not written by Peter, and it was not written by Paul. It was written by an anonymous person, and Peter's name was signed to it. This is a pastoral epistle. This is one of those little books at the end that's starting to lay down uh, rules and laws. So here we go. 1 Peter 3. Wives in the same way, Accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wife's conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Jesus didn't talk this way. It's kind of interesting. Jesus didn't talk this way. Even Paul didn't really talk this way. But boy, you get into those pastoral epistles at the end. And there's a real concern about wives obeying husbands. You know, I think there's a larger worldview that sort of, that sort of fears uh, that when we don't have hard structures of authority, people left to their own devices will do bad. And so people's inherent bad impulses and bad urges need to be controlled by authority. It's kind of a view that we basically are intrinsically kind of bad and we're only as good as the power that controls us and restricts us. And when you have that view of human nature, it makes sense then that you would feel 
that things need to be kept under control. Now I can already hear people going, so who controls the guys? Yes, it was a patriarchal system, that's how it was. But that kind of language about wives obeying husbands, it isn't in Jesus and it isn't in the undisputed letters of Paul, the one that we know Paul wrote. This stuff comes a little bit later. I don't get the sense in reading either Paul or Jesus that wives obeying their husbands was a big burning concern of theirs. They had other things on their mind. It was not a priority. The idea of disobedient wives ruining society was not something that Jesus ever talked about. But boy, does Peter get into it, right? Oh, accept the authority. Why do they make this rule? There's another sort of principle when laws are made, and that is that generally a law is made when someone thinks that something is a problem. When something is out of control, we make a rule to control it, right? And if we don't think something's out of control, we just let it go. So was there a problem, a perceived problem, in the early Christian church about wives not obeying their husbands? I think the answer is yes. There were a lot of wives potentially not obeying their husbands. That the trajectory Jesus and Paul had created was leading women to go, hmm, maybe we could rethink this. And so the early church then is now getting noticed by the Romans, it's getting criticized by the Romans, it's getting pressure by the Romans, which are a very patriarchal and hierarchical society. Are Christians telling their women to go their own way and do whatever they want? What will happen to society and family if, if, if these bossy women are not obeying their husbands? Better clamp down with the law. That's what you're seeing in Peter. It's a reaction. This is not a preventative law, it's a reactive law. And they're trying to bat down the hatches and reassert old ways of hierarchy and authority for the sake of A, getting the Romans off their back. So I think there's a fair amount of selling out. But there's also this, I think, this concern about what happens when women are not under men's authority. Are they gonna do some of that stuff that Paul was hinting at in Romans 1? You know, again, control and sexual morality are tight. The, the, two, the two can't be unbound. When you start here, authority and sexual morality, for those who are concerned about it, they come hand in hand. Because of course, who's going to define those limits? Who's going to maintain those limits and those boundaries? There has to be authority or the boundary's not a boundary, it's an exception. Or, I'm sorry, a suggestion. All right, let's look at Ephesians. Let's look at another one of these. All right. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Paul did not write Ephesians. It's another pseudo-Paul. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. This is a view that you might hear the phrase sometimes called the created order. The belief that the hierarchical system of the family 
is sort of baked into the fabric of the universe. And, you know, so as we would tell people to obey Jesus, women should obey their husbands. They're exactly the same. That's the writer of Ephesians. Jesus and Paul don't say that. The writer of Ephesians does. And it's very clear. You know, if you love Jesus, you obey your husband. Obey, right? Um, and wives ought to be in everything, everything subject. There's no exceptions here, given here. There's no places where the wife gets to say, well, okay, I mean, I'll be subject in these things, but do I really have to do that too? No, no exceptions. Now Ephesians gives the second half. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water and by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. The argument I usually hear from traditionalists uh, regarding this passage in Ephesians is that it is equality, it's just a, di you know, um, we eat different role equality. The wives obey, the husbands love. It's not both obey, it's not a mutual obedience. It's, it, and, and so just as wives obey their husbands, so their husbands should love their wives, but it still keeps a hierarchical authority. There's still one over another. The system hasn't fundamentally changed. All the writer of Ephesians is really saying is, men be good authorities. You know, just as Christ is a good authority, so you be a good authority. We're not gonna get rid of the idea of authority. We're not gonna create a relationship where there isn't one over the other, where there isn't an authority. No, 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 no. We are going to maintain the authority. We're just gonna tell you to be good at it. Be, lo be loving in, in the way you use authority. Now, of course, this raises all sorts of questions. Well, who decides how, who, what's loving? Who decides what is the, the, the right way for a husband to command his wife? Well, you know, it, it doesn't say that. I think what Ephesians is trying to do is a little bit have it, they're trying to talk it both ways while preserving an old way, right? You know, they're trying to say, hey, you know, we don't want husbands being abusive either. We were not for that, but just because we don't want husbands abusive doesn't mean we want women doing their own thing. This is not Paul, right? And you know, I, I, if all the, if he had just, if the writer of Ephesians had just stopped at verse 21, I'd be cool with that, right? Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? Listen to each other. Love each other, trust each other, follow each other. Sometimes I do what my wife tells me to. And because I know and I love her and I trust her and I know that she's not trying, you know, when she says, you know, to do X, Y, Z, she isn't trying to screw me over in some way, right? Because I love her, there's love and trust there, so I obey. I might still ask why, do you want me to run to Target? But I'll still obey, right? Be subject to one another, I'm okay with that. 
There's a lot of marriage that's going to involve being subject to one another. But then the writer of Ephesians has to kind of mess it all up by saying, okay, this is how we're subject to one another. And it's not, it's not, it's not some sort of equal thing. It's an authority thing. And, um, and that, that's where it goes. So again, writer of Ephesians, clamping down that law, clamp down that law. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. See? See? You should love your wife like you love yourself. That's supposed to be the mechanism that's supposed to curb the abuse. That's what he's saying. It doesn't say... Husbands, don't take authority to, you know, get rid of your authority. It's maintaining the authority, but it's just doubling down again and say, be a loving authority. Okay. Um, finally, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here we go again with that same quoting of Genesis. This is a great mystery. Hmm. And I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Notice how the words are different. They're not the same words. Wife respects. It isn't the husband has to respect his wife. Wife does the respecting. The husband does the loving. The loving dictator, the loving authority, the benevolent power, that's still the worldview they're in, right? Because even the, even the ancients and even people who are hell-bent on the importance of systems of authority are able to see that authority gets abused. And so the an their answer is never, maybe we should have less authority um, or checks and balances on authority. Uh, no, the answer is always, you know, the authorities just need to be better authorities. If, if they were more loving authorities, we wouldn't have that. The problem, the problem isn't a power structure issue. The problem is a what's in your heart issue. And you, you, and you can see that. And there's very much, you know, still in our culture, a strong impulse uh, in certain sectors that believes that we have to have, go back to these systems of authority. You know, and the old family model of husband over wife, father over children, you know, larger family over smaller family, authority, authority, authority. And that sort of will say things like, you know, if we had more spankings, we'd have less, you know, burglaries, that kind of thing. Um, it's a worldview that still tends to view that people left to their own devices will do what's horrible and they need to be curbed by authority. And here's the funny thing, though. The authority doesn't need to be curbed. The, 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 the husband as authority doesn't need to have an authority checking up on him. He's just told, pretty please, be nice and love her. Pretty please? Right? There's no systemic structural way to enforce um, if he interprets loving as, well, she didn't do the dishes, so I beat her up, you know, but she needs to learn how to do the dishes. It, I, it's loving, right? Like the parent who spanks. I'm whopping my kid because I love you. This hurts me more than you. And someone would say, well, if you love your kid, you wouldn't spank him. And they say, I'm, doing, I'm spanking out of love, right? Um, 
And so there's nothing in here that prevents any guy from reinterpreting whatever he wants to be a loving response. What constitutes a loving response? Do, do, do you have a checklist? And, if, and who decides if his interpretation of being a loving husband is wrong? You know, most people in the ancient world would have been much tied into an extended family and a community. There would have been eyes on you. But if you want me to believe that some guy uh, who's smacking his wife around, that the neighbors would intervene and say, you know, Maximus, you're not being very loving to your wife as Christ loves the church, or as, you know, as the church loves Christ. You really think they're going to intervene in that? Come on. Even, even a couple generations ago, even in parts of our country today, there are people who will still say, it is not my job to intervene in what happens between uh, a married couple, right? It's not my business, stay out of it. And we've been working hard as a society to say, you can stay out of it, but when you hear people getting beaten, you don't stay out of it. That there are lines where we as a society will intervene. But the culture that says stay out of it is still very strong. You're gonna tell me that you believe that in the ancient church, ancient Christian church, a guy who interpreted loving in a very violent way that everybody would have just intervened and all the guys in the community would have sat him down and told him, you need to fix your job, Maximus, and be a little bit more loving. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I, I think they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to have authority, without the abuses of authority, and they think they've found the system. But in reality, if you think that people are fundamentally always going to, you know, lean towards doing bad things if they're given the power to do it, then you should be the first one to say that maybe people shouldn't have unilateral authority over others because their dark, sinful nature will take them down that bad path. So, I, you can see I'm not the biggest fan of this passage in Ephesians. I don't quote it at weddings. And, again, Paul didn't write this. It was written later. They are reasserting authority. Okay, I would be amiss. I know we're at an hour, I, I, but I, I would be amiss if I did not talk about 1 Timothy 2. Of all the New pa Testament passages that are clobber verses, uh, not necessarily about LGBTQ things, but clobber verses about women and authority, and um, uh, women in leadership. 1 Timothy 2 is the go-to verse. There, there are people who, I swear, they must have this passage hanging on, the, on their walls. They must recite it every day. Uh, they love this book. It's almost like a Rorschach test to see how fundamentalist a person is based on how much of an authority they take 1 Timothy 2. So let's read it. we we, we got to look at it. It is not, before I say even one more word, let me stop myself. It is not written by Paul to Timothy. It's written by some unknown person in the early Christian church, probably a hundred years after Paul, signed by Paul's name. It didn't go to Timothy. Timothy was also dead. It was, it was addressed to him. It's to give the, these letters the impression of being from Paul. So it's not just, you know, uh, Maximus the bishop who's, you know, sort of worried about the women in his church getting out of hand. No, 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 it can't be that. So to give it that air of authority, they sign Paul's name. But here we go. Now let's read it. Starting at 1 Timothy 2, 8, 8 through 15. 
I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. I'm cool. I think men should be leaders in their families in prayer. Men should be public examples in their families of how to lead a prayer life. Absolutely. Lift up your holy hands, go for it. Great. Without anger or argument. I'm even, I'm even more behind that. Definitely without the, the anger, right? But we don't stop there. Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence and with full submission. Clobber, 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 clobber. I can just hear it right now, right? So, men pray. Women, we got some interesting rules here. Interesting rules here. Dress modestly and decently in suitable clothing. What is modesty? I don't know. Um, you can fill a million uh, blogs with what is and is not appropriately modest um, and, uh, and the role of that. But however that was interpreted in that culture at that time, uh, okay, dress modestly. Uh, I know that there were issues in early Christian churches of class. So those who had lots of money would come in and flaunt it with fancy clothes. So I do know that there was a concern in early Christian churches in order to not make the Christians who were in poverty feel like dirt by requiring those who were wealthy to dress down. You know, don't wear your Armani to church and make everybody feel like idiots. Don't come in in your custom, shall I pick a fashion designer? Donna Karen, uh, you know, custom gown. You can wear normal people clothing. I'm cool with that. You know, there's a good reason for that. Okay, hair braided? Don't have hair braided? What's that about? We don't know for certain. There, I've heard the theory that braided hair had a sort of a social connotation, that it signaled sexual availability. Maybe, I haven't, been able to, I haven't been able to confirm that. I know in some cultures there are rules that women who are married have a different hairstyle than women who are not married. I, I can't, I haven't been able to track down if that's for sure here. That's a possibility, we'll say. It could also be a possibility that if you're rich, of course, you've got servants and hairstylists you can pay to sit and carefully braid your hair, right? If you're poor, living on the street, that gets a little harder. Okay. Or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Okay, this part I understand. Again, this is that class issue. Don't flaunt your wealth and make other people in the church feel bad. So that part, if that's the intention, the intention is good. I can't tell you the number of evangelicals and Baptists and fundamentalists I have found who will fall on their swords to block gay weddings in their church. But those same women will come to that church with very, very well done hair, lots of makeup, lots of jewelry, lots of fine clothes, not to make others feel bad, but because that's what they want to do. But still, <laughs> they're, violating, they're violating a good chunk of that scripture. 
you know? And there aren't many churches I know of that actually enforce those rules. I, I heard there was one in Tempe, I don't know if it's still open, where the guy actually had, the pastor actually had his ushers stand there and check for braids and pearls and jewelry. Um, I've never known anyone to follow that. You know, again, in its context, if I give it the, be the benefit of the doubt, um, the rule is not that bad, you know. Uh, there, there, there's a potential to it. Okay. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. Boom. That's where we're, now we're just back to hierarchy and authority. So if you find churches that are still very strict about not having women pastors or women even on the board or women even in head of committee positions, this is the verse uh, that they will pick. Women are to be silent and learn. That's it, be silent and learn. And if you're up front talking and teaching, you're not silent and you're not learning, you're talking and you're, you're, you're telling. So there are some that take that very seriously. They take that one dead seriously. I would wanna know those who ban women from their boards if they also check for pearls. Um, I'm gonna wager money they don't. Let's keep going. Verse 12, I permit no woman, permit no woman to have authority over a man, she is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know you, you hear this and you just sort of, my mind just immediately goes to, you know, Iran today, right? Where, you know, you got these mullahs who are literally like killing people, killing women because uh, their head covering shows hair. Like that woman in Iran that died, she actually had a head covering on, but some hair showed underneath it. She wasn't trying to not follow the head covering law. They didn't think she was strict enough, so they smashed her head into the car and killed her. You know, and I think about I think about that, and I read a verse like this, and I just keep thinking, gosh, you know, I can still see the echoes of this deep, deep fear of, uh, of, of women getting in control and flaunting their own sexuality. I don't believe that all flaunting of sexuality is always good. We can save that, you know, there's not enough time here to go over uh, those cases. I am not an advocate that all slutty clothing styles in all situations is always good. Um, again, we can get into that in another time, but man, I listen to this and I just feel like, you know, Timothy's, the writer of 1 Timothy is really worried here. And so now he's trying to buttress his argument by saying that because uh, Eve, but because, because Adam was first, therefore he should have power. Who says the one who comes first has the power? Apparently that, that's, that's a rule, right? It's not just a description. You know, first came Adam, then came Eve. It's Adam came first, and because he came first, he should have authority. Okay. Um, and that Eve was deceived. So the implication here is that women can't control their impulses as well. I mean, that, that's what he's saying. Women have to have the men as the authority over them because they're more easily tempted. Oh, my experience has shown that's not true. And I think the data is showing when they look at cases of people cheating, 
Men cheat like 26% and women cheat 24. It's not a big difference. It's pretty close. The men of the women beat by a little bit, but it, it, the data doesn't show that, that men are less likely to succumb to temptation. Um, I think this is more about a concern of women getting out of their marriages and picking somebody of their choice, not who their family chooses. I think that's more the concern here. Um, you'll be saved through childbearing. You're gonna go to hell, but if you make babies, and, but if you make babies and obey your husband and stay pure and holy, uh, you got a chance. You know, every time I read this, I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not literal. There are moments I'd take 2 1 Timothy 2 out of the Bible. All right, there we go. That was the end of the slideshow. Uh, let me pull off picture in picture. There we go. Um, this is all I'm going to do today. It looks like I'm already almost at a minute, hour 15. So, again, conclusion, final thoughts. Looking at the overarching structure of the Bible, I am a believer that what you see is pendulum swinging that and you see pendulum swinging and people reacting there there's there's a theory out there among biblical scholars that says that um, those books of the law those five books of the law were actually written after the books of the prophets that they were a reaction to uh, a concern while the jewish people were living in babylon that they would adopt Babylonian customs and culture uh, and that they'd assimilate and so they clamped down with the law but put, but put the, the, the story of the law way earlier. That, that's an interesting argument. It can get kind of, no, again, pretty technical. Uh, but, you know, I look at that as being very possible because, again, we tend to write down and clamp down on laws when we feel like things are getting out of control or we're worried, you know, when we're worried that a lack of boundaries is going to cause our faith to sort of get mushy and disappear. So we clamp down laws and boundaries. And there is definitely a place for laws and boundaries and a place in religion for laws and boundaries. Um, I, I, I just don't think it's all the rules in Deuteronomy. But understand the trend, the swinging back and forth, right? We feel like things are getting loose and relativistic, so we clamp down the laws, right? We worry about the social order and we're anxious about the breakup of a patriarchal social order, so we get nervous that too much of, of Paul and Jesus and this, you know, egalitarian stuff is going to lead to breakup of families and whatnot, so we're going to react against it and we're going to clamp down and we're going to lay down the law, we're going to get those rules and boundaries back again. They're, those are reactions. And when you understand those pastoral epistles as reactions against a fear and, I think, a lack of imagination, that's what I would tend to say, is that every time you get sort of social change coming and the potential for big social changes, not every change is good and changes often have negative unintended consequences. So I think as you approach social change, you have to be aware of that. You have to be thoughtful. You have to look at things with a bit of a critical eye. But you also don't know when social change comes, how it's going to shake out. And it takes a little bit of an imagination to imagine a world 
that if it that doesn't have strict authorities controlling everybody. And when you come out of a world based on authority, you know, and you think of moving into something else, you know, why couldn't those early church people have had the imagination to try to sit down with a cool mind and say, what would Christian families look like if everything wasn't hierarchical? Um, what would uh, marriage look like uh, and sexuality look like if it wasn't all based on arranged marriages between families or just man and woman? Can we imagine that? And if we imagine it and, and honestly run the scenario through our heads, does it lead to chaos and anarchy uh, and destruction? Um, there, are un there are negative consequences that have come with the sexual revolution, I believe. Not, every, not everything about it has led to families and communities being better off. But just because there are negative consequences doesn't mean we can't live into a new reality that doesn't have to involve hierarchy and authority. But hierarchy and authority live on the, the fear of chaos and anarchy is always sort of the specter that's held up, right, to keep you in line. That's what authorities use. Either be afraid of some outsider who's going to get you, I'll protect you, give me authority, or chaos and anarchy will break up and, you know, bad things will happen, give me authority to prevent it. Authority lives on that certain fear and that specter of things happen. If we allow ourselves to sit down and be calm and have some imagination uh, and think this through, I think we can think through, we can revise our views without going wholehearted anarchy and without going anything goes. It is not a binary choice between, you know, rigid hierarchy and authority and, you know, orgy clubs. It's not, those are not our only two choices. That's not the only way in which to, to understand sexuality. Um, and I do, I do think as a conclusion, uh, and I've, again, as I've said throughout, the concern about control high, and hi hierarchy and authority and sexual morality, those concerns go hand in hand, right? And the people who are concerned about authority in lots of things tend to also be concerned about authority in matters of sexuality and about maintaining those kind of lines. But what you will notice as I was going through the New Testament, there's not a single verse in there that says, um, you know, you shall not have same-sex weddings. What you get is Paul saying things like, unnatural relations are the result of worshiping creation. He doesn't even say, uh, you know, that's what he says. I don't know what my thought was, but that's what he says. That's as far as it goes. He doesn't say you shall not have same-sex weddings. He doesn't say marriage is one man and one woman only. Um, although I think he does teach monogamy. Uh, he isn't a fan of concubinage and all these other sort of practices. He does come down on that. But the New Testament's amazingly quiet on the issue of same-sex things, other than Paul calling it unnatural and whatever it is. Um, so I don't feel like that is Paul's, 
the, I don't, how should I put this? I don't feel like the Apostle Paul's understanding of what he thinks is unnatural is the standard that must be an absolute boundary for all time. I go back to Jesus and I tend to look at him more instead and not take Paul's own particular vision of morality uh, as a non-married celibate guy who thought the world was coming to an end. I'm, when it comes to sexual morality, he's not who I turn to as an issue. So, ah, there we go. Been here a while. Thanks for your patience and thanks for being patient with me when the signal cut out. I think I bumped the input cable. Sorry. Uh, and and uh, for being patient with me with that. Get, message me if you have any questions, uh, if you'd like to look at it some more. Next couple weeks, I'm planning to get into the actual ELCA social statement from 2009. Look at some of the, some of the things it says. It's a bit, it's, you know, almost 40 some pages. So I can't, I'm not gonna do everything word for word. But we'll look at some of the points, look at some of the ideas behind them, what they're trying to teach, and how it tries to establish a framework for understanding sexual, human sexuality that is neither a trying to parse exactly what scripture says or what the Apostle Paul believed and not anything goes, do whatever feels good, just get consent. Um, it's not either of those. And so, uh, all right. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. Uh, and I wish you all a great week. I hope this has been helpful. Feel free to message me as always. God bless.